Disclaimer. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the New American Magazine. They're submitted for your entertainment and consideration. You should consult your doctor before considering expending too much strenuous energy on these controversial subjects. If you don't have medical authorization, consider this invitation as your permission slip for independent thought. Welcome to Under the Iceberg, hosted by Daniel Natal. Tonight's episode is dedicated to an interview with author Jason Rezidorjani on his book, Closer Encounters. Chapter 1. The Premise. Jason Rezidorjani is a distinguished man of letters, futurist, and philosopher. That rarest of rare things today, he's an open-minded seeker of truth whose pursuit has led him from the sometimes arid landscapes of academia into the paranormal. In this way, he resembles Renaissance men and intrepid scientists from the 19th century more than he does some of their anemic and sheepish descendants in modern academia. As a result of his studies, he's come up with a groundbreaking book, the aforementioned Closer Encounters, that ties together disparate strands which, standing alone, have tangled previous researchers in knots. From UFOs to Bigfoot to remote viewing to time travel, Giorgiani has come up with a sort of theory of everything that weaves them all together in a larger fabric. I'd like to welcome him on today. First off, let's start by addressing the fact that your book is a sort of spiritual descendant of those great volumes by Charles Fort from 100 years ago. You almost dedicated Closer Encounters to Fort, correct? That's right. And it's a pleasure to be with you, Daniel. I love your intro, by the way. Ah, thank you. So go ahead, explain about uh, Charles Fort. Like originally you were going to uh, dedicate the book to Fort, but instead you veered and I've heard other people interview you and ask, you know, why you uh, dedicated it to Jack Parsons, which I already feel like I, I can guess at, you know, per aspera ad astra frater, <laughs> for, through difficulties to the stars, brother. Um, but but I was more interested in, uh, in, in the similarities to Charles Fort. A few people have interpreted Fort from a philosophical perspective. Um, in fact, uh, it's hard for me to think of anyone who has. And so what I try to do in the last couple of chapters of Closer Encounters, chapters six and seven, uh, one of which is almost a book length itself, is I try to um, interpret Fort in terms of, uh, you know, a handful of different uh, theses uh, that uh, sort of uh, organize his insights and thoughts into a more systematic framework than he himself uh, presented them in terms of. So we can go through those if, you, if you're interested. Well, all I was going to say is I'm probably the only interviewer that you've run into so far who's actually read all of Fort. And I did it in my 20s, and I was just fascinated by Fort. And But his 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 books are basically just collections of facts. They're feuilletons, little, little articles that he found, and they're in no particular order. He just kind of, you know, mushes them together. And uh, his own, you know, kind of commentary is, 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 you know, nothing short of brilliant. But nevertheless, it's it's a disparate, you know, kind of variety, a medley of different things. And so I saw your book as an advance on Fort insofar as you applied your philosophy to it, your background as a philosopher, and you brought systematic thought to it, which Fort didn't have. Fort was, Fort was, um, he would he would complain about uh, modern uh, politics, modern art, modern science, like relativity, and he would call it impressionist. And ironically, Fort suffered from that. Like he had this very impressionistic, blurry kind of, you know, palette that, he, you know, that he was using. Whereas you like kind of bring all of those things into focus, into sharper focus. And I was extremely impressed by that. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I identify uh, certain insights that were 
way ahead of their time, which Fort had, um, you know, things that he's thinking about in terms of what we now call close encounters, that even the top UFO researchers of uh, the 1960s uh, and early 70s uh, really hadn't wrapped their minds around yet. So, um, you know, again, I mean, if you're interested, we can go through a handful of those um, theses, if you'd like, from out of uh, Charles Fort's works. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, shoot. So one of them is um, the idea that the Bible is not uh, mythology or, um, uh, you know, some kind of um, fantastical writing uh, similar to, let's say, you know, um, the Shahnameh of Ferdowsi or uh, other, you know, epic literature. It's actually folklore and it's a kind of uh, folkloric chronicle that um, initially probably an oral tradition preserved the history of the Israelite people. And treating the Bible as folklore, uh, Fort sees uh, a lot of the events that, that are recounted in the Old Testament um, as on a continuum with uh, the close encounters uh, that uh, people had with, let's say, airships in the 1890s and that people were having in the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, so one of his first insights is that, you know, our um, revealed religions uh, are actually uh, machinations on the part of the same beings that are responsible for um, close encounters with what he called, you know, super constructions and so forth in the late 19th, early 20th century. And closely related to that is his analysis of the close encounter phenomenon in terms of colonialism. Ford's writing at the apogee of the colonial era, and he believes that uh, the, be the beings, you know, who are responsible for UFO sightings or for the, the airship sightings of the 1890s haven't established open diplomatic relations with us because actually we are embedded in a colonial system run by them. And they see us as a kind of slave population or let's say, uh, you know, a, a farm, uh, an animal farm of sorts. And, uh, so, he says it would be as absurd to, to, to uh, expect that they should establish diplomatic relations with us as it would be for, uh, for us to think that, you know, ranchers should engage the chickens or cattle on their farms in some kind of a, uh, you know, um, uh, diplomatic, uh, you know, enterprise. And so, so that's the, the second, uh, you know, uh, interpretive framework that he brings to bear on Close Encounters, which you didn't see in the UFO literature I think until probably the late 1960s, it wasn't until the late 60s, early 70s, that authors like Zachariah Sitchin, um, Jacques Vallée, uh, and others began to think of, uh, you know, the UFO phenomenon in terms of long-term colonization of this planet and uh, in terms of kind of occulted colonial elite uh, that's, you know, managing affairs of various societies on this planet. I, I kind of uh, stumbled upon a couple of things. You started by talking about Fort suggesting that the Bible was folklore. You know, it was a, a distant memory of things that had actually happened. But, you know, it's it seen through the filter, you know, of changing cultures and time periods and, and literacy levels. And and so it, it comes out, you know, like through Chinese whispers. On the other end, it's a little little distorted, but that there might be like a basic kernel of truth there. And it was the collective memory of, of a people. And um, one of the things that, that I wanted to bring to your attention that you might not 
know about because I didn't until very recently. I was listening to um, Walter Edgar, and he was doing a, a history of South Carolina. And he shared a particular anecdote, and um, it, it, it kind of touches upon the reptilian uh, theme that, you know, a lot of people, you know, have, have talked about in uh, UFO research and, and, you know, weird anomaly, you know, uh, legends and stuff. Um, and I kind of wanted to, to share uh, this little clip with you, so I'll, I'll just bear with me one second while I play it. After landing on the coast of what is now South Carolina, the Spaniards enticed some natives to come on board their ships. As soon as they were on board... The ships weighed anchor and set sail for Española, where the captives were to be sold into slavery. En route, one of the ships was wrecked, and a number of the captives either drowned or died. But among the survivors was a young male who was given the name Francisco Chacora. The young man was named for the province. This is what the, what the Spaniards call this area, the land called Chacora. And they gave him a good Spanish name, Francisco. Hence, Francisco Chacora. Chacora learned Spanish and became a Christian, and in 1523 accompanied Allion to Spain, and there he entertained the court with his tales of his native land, Shakora. Some of the tales the Indian related were substantiated by later observers. However, he also knew how to spin a good yarn. Among the fanciful stories he told was one of a strange people with hard tails three feet long. Because of these appendages, they had to dig holes in order to sit down. Unfortunately, they subsisted solely on fish, and when the fish disappeared, the long-tailed people died out. His description of these lizard-like people bear a remarkable resemblance to the lizard man of Lee County reported in 1988. Now, much of what Shakora related found its way into print in two major 16th century European publications. But it was his testimony, this native South Carolinian's testimony, that so intrigued the Spanish court that they gave Allion a contract to explore and settle the area north of today's Florida Peninsula. Now, the reason why I played that at this juncture was the fact that you brought up colonialism, and that is right at the juncture of colonialism and kind of reptilian lore that I, I didn't even know of the Lizard Man of Lee County or any any of those sightings, some of which have happened as recently as 2015 by people who have never heard of Francisco Shakora or never knew that Native Americans talked about kind of lizard men uh, that, that kind of populated the area. Um, so what's your take on that? Well, this kind of actually brings me to the next point that I was going to make in terms of Fort, which is that um, he suspects that we're sort of born and bred uh, on this colonial animal farm by the entities that are uh, piloting uh, UFOs. And so that, you know, this brings us to the subject of uh, the genetic engineering of mankind. And in this book, I make a case that uh, and, you know, this would bring us to even the next the next uh, m major insight that Ford has about the interdimensionality of the phenomenon. But in any case, in this book, I argue that we're dealing with time travelers, ultimately, that UFOs are effectively flying time machines. And if these beings uh, were, were operating on the Earth prior to the evolution of humanity, uh, I think a strong case could be made that they genetically engineered humanity themselves, which is on the face of it, somewhat paradoxical because we're dealing with human time travelers, uh, you know, uh, penetrating the geological past of the earth before the natural evolution of humanity and in effect becoming responsible for the artificial engineering of humanity themselves. Uh, but to come to answering your question, the question that I raise in this book is if it's the case that 
these beings ran a kind of genetic garden of Eden uh, in the context of which they um, engineered humanity, why would we suppose that many of the other humanoid types of beings that are uh, you know, written about in the close encounter literature are naturally evolved species, why couldn't it be the case that let's say the reptilians are some kind of a spliced organism uh, that's been genetically designed using the DNA of uh, some kind of, you know, uh, bipedal um, uh, predatory dinosaur and, uh, you know, and early hominids. Uh, and the same goes for, you know, any number of other uh, humanoid type species that are seen in, in, uh, uh, in various close encounters, like, for example, the Mothman at Point Pleasant. I'm not convinced that these beings are necessarily aliens. They may actually be escapees of some kind of a primordial Frankenstein's laboratory on this planet. In the Bible, um, they talk about Eve, uh, you know, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that she's, she's uh, you know, kind of tempted by the serpent. And a lot of atheists will laugh and say, oh, look, but God only punishes the serpent by taking away his limbs after. So what we're talking about a serpent that, like, you know, that walked, that, you know, that, that was possibly bipedal, you know, is that what you're talking, and, and, like, laughing. But if you think about it at the time, they might not have had a word reptilian. So they used the term serpent at the time, you know. And, and if you read the account at the time, it, it, it's very similar. I wanted to, to bring your attention. I'm just going to play a second clip. Um, and this is somebody talking about Hopi legends uh, that are very similar to the Adam and Eve legends. So bear with me one second. During research for our best-selling book, On the Path of the Immortals, I was given the unprecedented opportunity, really, to sit down with and to film Dr. Don Mose Jr., a third-generation medicine man who I met with for a large part of the day during our investigation, and he told me the oldest legends of the Anasazi, which he had been told by his great-grandfather, who likewise had been told by his ancestors, which included stories of the Anasazi turning to sorcery, to sacrifice, cannibalism, after they had lost their way and were driven insane by a reptilian creature, which they depict with a halo above his head, of all things. Uh, images of that being are, by the way, included in the petroglyphs. And I believe that they likely attest to the fallen reptile or reptiles of biblical fame, which also misled humanity. Why I played that clip was because there you have the Anasazi with the same legends. And I, I neglected to add where he talks about they tempted a female, you know, so they understand human psychology and they understand that the best way to kind of penetrate a society is to not address themselves to the males, but to the females. This gets back to, to what you were saying, you know, that the Bible may not be, you know, like a, a, a classic literary text in that sense, but more folklore, you know, more collected collective memory. Yeah, I think that's that's quite possibly the case. I mean, uh, one of the points that I make is that if you um, have inserted yourself into the vast geological past, and uh, you know, in my book specifically, I argue that the place that they would have gone in order to find some point of stability uh, to base themselves, so that these time travelers are not constantly destabilizing, you know, the variables of human history, would have been Mars. Uh, you know, at the time when it was a living planet like Earth, when Mars still had a biosphere. And so, it, you know, if you find yourself uh, 
having to leave Mars after whatever catastrophe destroyed um, its biosphere and, and being forced to relocate to the Earth and needing to terraform this planet and so forth and render it habitable uh, for human life. Uh, and your conclusion is that you need a slave race to help you do that. You know, I, I would think any uh, competent manager would first attempt to create a slave race that wasn't entirely based on the human genome, that, you know, your first attempt would be to take the genome of some other species and to splice some of humanity into it so that you can, uh, you know, avoid exploiting fellow human beings. And it's possible that the reptilians are a failed attempt uh, at developing um, a slave race. And that in time, they were replaced by more humanoid, uh, you know, subservient workers. And, you know, in that context, uh, look through that kind of interpretive, uh, you know, a framework, you could see the serpent in Eden as a representative of this earlier uh, failed attempt at a slave race, trying to enlighten the, you know, new humanoid, uh, you know, laborers, uh, to to uh, try to get them to open their eyes and uh, recognize their own uh, condition of enslavement. Because, you know, um, for example, the phrase, uh, and then their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and so forth. People often misinterpret this as uh, having to do with, uh, you know, some kind of sexual shame over nudity. Actually, it's a reference to the fact that in ancient societies, slaves often uh, worked naked. I mean, slaves, slave laborers were, were naked in, in many uh, ancient societies, whether, you know, in Sumer, even in, in ancient Rome, in some cases. And so uh, it has to do with the humiliation of being a slave. No, Therefore, that's, I, that's know, brilliant. It's, it's okay. that, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, too, there's also the possibility of uh, good cop, bad cop, because at the same time that there's the reptilian, you know, kind of memory, there's also the memory of angels. And there was this one uh, – Fort has informed a lot of my vocabulary, by the way. Um, I use I use this term conventionalist. I don't use the term skeptic because most of the uh, self, uh, you know, self, self-styled uh, skeptics are not actually skeptical of anything. They usually just attack the, the narratives of the, of the powerless and uphold the narratives of the powerful. So I call them what Fort conventionalists and there was this one conventionalist who was kind of laughing at the uh, the alien gray phenomenon and she was pointing out that in in places like Russia and, and all over the world in fact that the 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 race that was predominantly seen and described were these tall Nordic looking people uh, who, who in today's terminology the new, new age they call them Pleiadians and stuff um, but uh, but yes yeah, so you see these these angels you know who, who might be depicted as these Nordics in the garden as well as the reptilians so there is the possibility of a, of, of a certain measure of good good cop bad cop chapter two speculation yeah i totally agree and of course the thesis of my book is that uh these uh so-called pleiadians who also uh introduced themselves to certain contactees like george adamski as venusians that these are actually uh quite literally nordics people call them the nordic aliens what i argue is that really these people are uh time travelers from a breakaway civilization, uh, a civilization that broke away from the known civilizations of Earth uh, when the uh, you know, uh, international Nordic elite uh, devised time travel technology. Uh, that from, from the 1890s through the 1940s, 
you had this uh, basically intercontinental elite from America to Britain into Germany, a kind of Anglo-Saxon uh, steering group that was economic, political, industrial in nature. And on the one hand, these people were developing anti-gravity propulsion technology. And on the other hand, they were very committed to the uh, basically the engineering of a Nordic master race. I mean, this is uh, the stated aim of all of the eugenics programs in America from the 1890s through the early decades of the 20th century, uh, even among uh, statements of leading uh, politicians in Britain and so forth. So everything that we, in retrospect, uh, you know, on account of the, the mainstream media narrative about this, have associated with Nazi Germany was already there in the uh, you know, Anglo-American world beginning in the 1890s in terms of the, the aim of creating this Nordic master race. So I argue that you know, once zero-point energy technology was achieved based on an alternative physics model, specifically in Prague in the 1940s, this uh, elite broke away from the known civilizations of Earth and developed a time-traveling society. And so the Nordics that are seen, you know, in the context of close encounters are actually time travelers from various epochs in the history of this hyperdimensional breakaway civilization. And their relationship to, you know, the various cultures in particular eras of Earth's history is the relationship of a fifth dimensional society to uh, various cultures uh, ensconced in, a, you know, 40 spatio-temporal um, frame. Well, I wanted to hit something. Um, on page 359 of your book, you write, uh, as a library-dwelling bookworm, Fort followed the literature of quantum physics as it first began to be published in the scientific journals of the day. He thought that phenomena such as superposition and entanglement could make reasonable almost any miracle, and that the quantum theory is a doctrine of magic or an attempted systematization of the principles of magic such that physics was becoming occultism. And um, now I wanted to stop here and point out that magic was classically described as influence at a distance. For instance, when uh, Sir Isaac Newton came up with his theory of gravitation, it was originally dismissed because they said what you're describing with this gravitational field is influence at a distance. And that's pseudoscience. That's magic you're describing. In the 1850s, uh, Faraday, when he first proposed the concept of an electromagnetic field, he was met with the same kind of you know response that Isaac Newton was in the 1600s. You're describing influence at a distance. And and he was it was derided at first. And so you, you so you go to the the Anglo-Saxon elite that developed in the 19th century, um, actually, you know, prior to then, obviously. But the at the origins of the New Age, you have these groups like theosophists, uh, the, the Thelema group that we'll get into later, Aleister Crowley. And when you go to the teachings of Aleister Crowley and, and other occultists, Crowley explicitly describes magic as influence at a distance. And now you look at the technologies that they're using now. They're using frequencies. They're using, you know, kind of uh, satellite systems, 5G. Uh, they're, they're manipulating people with things like transcranial magnetic resonance, which I did a report on, um, you know, where they can actually change your disposition, change your temperament, make you not believe in God. One of the things, if you look up a transcranial magnetic resonance, they can uh, make you basically atheistical. They cut you off from that, that aspect of spirituality. There was an article about how they can make people like immigrants. Um, they can turn off your, your threat sense, your, your sense of threat through these, these frequencies. And so what they're dealing with is the systematization of magic, which Charles Fort talked about, you know, and you see it at, at the at 
at the inception, this this crossroads of of high science, right, and and occultism that that was started to develop, and it was extremely influential in the 20th century and the 21st century through, as I said, figures like Aleister Crowley or Jack Parsons or the Varian brothers, the people who founded um, Silicon Valley. Their parents were theosophists in Ireland, and they moved to California, and you can see them pictures of them in their white robes, their theosophy like getups and stuff. So there was a lot of you know kind of crossover between metaphysics and 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 hard hardcore science that was you know kind of exemplified in, in someone like Aleister Crowley or Jack Parsons. And I, I wanted you to kind of talk about Charles Fort's concept of the systematization of magic and how how that's kind of affecting us now. This is where Fort's uh, insights, I think, are most rigorously philosophical. Um, I draw a comparison between Fort's idea of successive dominance and uh, Thomas Kuhn's idea of paradigm shifts, uh, as well as uh, the epistemology of, uh, you know, uh, Paul Feyerabend. And what I argue is that, you know, Fort was kind of a, I mean, look, he wasn't, he wasn't a philosopher, but he's anticipating the philosophy of science of both Thomas Kuhn and Feyerabend, uh, and he's going further than both of them. Insofar as he has this idea that frameworks of knowledge don't just filter our perception of some objective reality. Uh, how we conceive of the world, especially you know, uh, on a social scale, actually changes the types of phenomena that are possible, that, that can manifest. So he's reading the early quantum physics journals you know, sitting there in the New York Public Library in the 1920s as uh, Niels Bohr and, and, you know, Heisenberg and so forth are publishing the first uh, papers on uh, quantum superposition and the collapse of the wave function. And, you know, it, it's occurring to Fort that it's possible that uh, some of this weirdness that he, that he uh, spent decades excavating from out of these scientific journals uh, indicates that there are no fixed laws of nature and that our consciousness, again, especially on an intersubjective social scale, is engaged in sort of, a, you know, determining possible configurations of being by marginalizing other ways that nature can manifest itself. So in any particular dominant, in any particular epoch or, or uh, era, uh, certain possible configurations of being are marginalized as impossible. They're branded impossible and uh, pushed to the fringe of human experience so that other um, configurations of, of uh, existence solidify into you know, a set of physical phenomena and psychological capacities that are believed to be the limits of the possible. Uh, so you know, th this is uh, beyond uh, you know, the scope of, of uh, what Kuhn means by a scientific paradigm. Fort, in his idea of dominance, is referring also to, let's say, religious ideas, uh, you know, the, the um, basic ideas that structure a society and so forth. And, you know, what is defined as possible versus impossible shifts from one era or epoch to another. Uh, and again, it's not a question of our filter uh, changing so that we have a, a more or less warped perception of reality. It's a question of reality itself shifting in response to what we what we take to be possible versus impossible. 
just to go back to the subject of Fort and quantum mechanics and stuff like that, like Einstein, he characterized uh, quantum mechanics as, a, what was it, spooky influence at a distance. So once again, we're, we're talking about magic or what used to be called magic. And it, like Isaac Asimov, you know, any sufficiently you know advanced science is indistinguishable from magic. And that's what we're, we're watching now. I mean, the old magic wand is now an antenna and it's and, and it's, you know, manipulating frequencies in, in the harp program in Alaska, you know, where they can change weather, you know, where they can they can change people's, you know, uh, personalities and stuff like that. But what I wanted to talk about, too, um, was um, you, you mentioned uh, Kuhn and you mentioned the fact that just by focusing attention on things, we might change reality. And we're just kind of hipping onto that. And uh, people, you know, were aware of this, you know, uh, countless generations ago, you know, uh, and and we're, we're we've been so materialistic and, and con, our materialism is actually kind of, you know, transcending, you know, the, the, the parameters of, of physical science as we used to understand them. And we're, we're starting to understand that egregores might be possible or tulpas might be possible. They did um, a, a thing called the Philip experiments uh, back in the 1970s in Toronto. And they, they had a bunch of, you know, non non-believers. These were not psychics. These were, you know, psychologists and scientists and engineers and physicists. And they got together and they created a fake seance. And they they created a purposely fictitious character that they called Philip, who they said was an Englishman in the 1600s. They all kind of voted on what his background would be. And now as they, they held these sessions, all of a sudden it started to manifest. All of a sudden they would start getting raps and the, the table would lift. And and, and so they, they seemed to, to have created a tulpa. Um, and so I remember there was a story, too, that was related. Um, the gentleman who who wrote the comic book The Shadow, which was a popular radio series in the 1930s, uh, somebody moved into his house, uh, you know, like a century later, and they started seeing like a man, a masked man in a cape, like running through the house. And this just unnerved them. They, they didn't know what was going on. They were like, is this place haunted? Is this a poltergeist? What, what's going on? And then when they did research on the house, they were shocked to find out that the guy who wrote The Shadow worked from that house and he had concentrated so much like energy on that character and that the, the what people were seeing was that w- looked identical to the character that he was describing you know in his, in his comic books and later on in the, in the radio series so once again you have this 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 thought projection that appears to have, have coalesced into reality almost like uh, alexandra david nail is another example she was the first white woman in tibet like more than 100 years ago and she describes the the making of a, of a tulpa um and uh, I mean, and and so if this is true, can you make tulpas on a large scale by by society concentrating on a particular thing, on a particular image? Can can enough people focus that energy and create Zeus or create Moloch or create, you know, Jehovah? Um, and, and so that's that's called an egregore, you know, for, for people who, who might want to look this up more deeply. But, yeah, this we're, we're getting at, at, at just fascinating you know, kind of vistas that have been opened up by by quantum physics, by by you know science as it advanced. But then you have people locking it away. There's a, a gentleman named uh, Meal, and he's a physicist from Denmark, and he he, he posits that 20 percent of physics has been hidden, has been removed from textbooks because a breakaway civilization, perhaps as you suggest, kind of you know made these discoveries, these breakthroughs. But then they realize that that to maintain a strategic advantage, they had to keep the rest of the populace in the dark. So while they were doing magic, you know doing occult things, um, they were telling us to be materialists. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's a lot there in what you said. I mean, to begin with, um, the egregore subject, in particular, the case of Philip, is one that I discuss uh, in my book, Prometheism. And um, I think uh, essentially what Fort was proposing with his idea of successive dominance is that 
you know, uh, our relationship to nature itself is somewhat egregoric, that on an intersubjective level, uh, we are manifesting what we then take to be reality. And at the core of this book, Closer Encounters, is the idea that uh, this hyperdimensional breakaway civilization that I was mentioning earlier um, has sort of locked us into one conception of the limits of reality. Because this civilization is able to traverse different epochs of history, uh, because it's operating on a kind of fifth dimensional level with respect to uh, our 4D places and times, the denizens of this culture have deluded themselves into believing that they've achieved perfection, that they've explored all of the possible configurations of human existence, and that, you know, their architecture, their art, uh, their forms of social organization uh, represent the uh, culmination of any possible evolutionary trajectory. Uh, so they're, they're stuck with this perennialist idea uh, of how society should be structured. And um, I think that we have been subjugated um, by that conception. And, uh, you know, one of the ways in which I use Fort's notion of, of successive dominance is uh, to, you know, provocatively raise the question of whether we can break out of this putative state of perfection that they claim has been achieved and whether we can open up further evolutionary possibilities for humanity again. And this is where, you know, we get into the, the question of the trickster and whether there's some other intelligence involved in close encounters besides, um, you know, the, the UFO pilots of the breakaway civilization. I, I wanted to bring this. This is in my notes. Uh, it says, in chapter one, you mentioned the famous Rendlesham Forest incident in 1980 when soldiers saw a landed UFO craft and got close enough to touch it. And um, one of the people involved said that he saw hieroglyphs. And um, he said, quote, these symbols were pictorial in design. The largest symbol was a triangle. And when I read that, I, it was, I was kind of reminded of uh, something I'd read, uh, De Republica by Cicero. And so in there, uh, he, he basically says, let me see if I can find the quote. That which has been said of Plato or of some other sage appears to me therefore very excellent, who being borne by a tempest to unknown lands and cast on a desert shore, while his companions were apprehensive on account of their ignorance of the place, is said to have perceived geometrical figures described on the sand, which, when he saw them, he bade them to be of good heart, for he had seen vestiges of men. Not that he judged so from the cultivation of the fields which he beheld, but from these indications of science." So what he's saying there is, you know, you're, you're cast away, you're, you're on an island, you know, possibly, you know, like, like in The Tempest by Shakespeare, right? And uh, Caliban is there, savages are there. But then if you see geometrical shapes, you see these archetypal shapes, you know, uh, geometry and stuff, um, this is an indication of, of kind of Apollonian thought of, of, of civilized beings. And so when you look at the triangles on the side of the, of, of the ships, it kind of reminded me of that, that there's, there's a dichotomy, a bifurcation. On the one hand... It's almost Nietzschean in, in, in scope. Nietzsche talks about in The Birth of Tragedy that there's two basic ways of kind of looking at things, it, it, which you would probably hate because uh, you're, you're not a big uh, kind of mithraic, you know, uh, what is it, duality, duality uh, concepts. You hate those. But nevertheless, he, he says that there's Apollonian thinking, which is like logical, rigid, uh, structured, like classical music. 
And then there's Dionysian thinking, named after the god Dionysus, you know, the god of wine, which is kind of like free form. It's the subconscious versus the conscious. It's a surreal art and, and, instead of, you know, kind of classic Renaissance painting and chiaroscuro. Um, you know, and, and like, like uh, the classic example of this would be John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So you have Paul McCartney doing Apollonian music, you know, very structured, Hey Jude or Eleanor Rigby. And then you have John Lennon singing, I am the walrus, goo 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 jube and stuff. You know, so that, that, that's the classic, you know, Apollonian Dionysian conception. So on the one hand, you have these possibly, you know, breakaway civilization, Nordic people riding in UFOs and they have triangles. They have, they have Apollonian thought, very structured, very fascistic. But then on the other hand, you have the trickster who is communicating in Dionysian ways. He's trying to bypass the conscious mind. He's, he's communicating with us up from, from the subconscious. And this might be, you know, earth energy itself. This might be something that is, that, that has nothing to do with the, the Nordic breakaway civilization. So you have this, this kind of battle, this clash of, of, uh, of conceptions of reality. Yeah, contrary to what you suggested, actually, I really appreciate Nietzsche's analysis on the birth of tragedy. And uh, it was one of the major inspirations for my uh, writing Prometheus and Atlas, my first book. Um, in the birth of tragedy, Nietzsche identifies uh, Prometheus as the first great Dionysian figure. Uh, and the, the first great, you know, uh, mask of the Dionysian in the tragic age of the Greeks is Prometheus. And uh, so, indeed, as you, as you suggested, I think that this uh, time-traveling Nordic breakaway civilization is uber-Apollonian, that, you know, you can see this in all of their architecture, all of the um, oldest structures in Peru, Bolivia, Mexico, Egypt, uh, Baalbek, Lebanon, uh, and other places in the world where you find these titanic-scale megaliths you can see that, you know, it's very polygonal, geometrically perfect uh, architecture. And uh, it, it uh, you know, as a testimony to a, an ultra Apollonian uh, cast of mind. And in fact, with specific reference to the hieroglyphs that you brought up in the Rendlesham Forest case, uh, remote viewers who have seen the same titanic megalithic structures as we have in these various places on earth, as we have in terms of these fingerprints of Atlantis uh, in various ancient cultures of earth, remote viewers who have seen the same type of architectural structures uh, at Sidonia on Mars and also on the dark side of the moon have said that there's a type of hieroglyphics in all three places that there are, I mean, vastly ancient hieroglyphics on Mars that are identical to one's on structures in the, on the dark side of the moon, uh, inscribed on, on uh, megaliths on the dark side of the moon that are still, um, you know, uh, facilities in use today. And uh, there are these same hieroglyphs on megalithic structures underneath the Antarctic ice sheet. So, you know, in, in my various writings, beginning with Prometheus and Atlas, uh, and, uh, you know, going all, all the way up to Closer Encounters, I... Uh, appropriate this theory um, of Charles Hapgood uh, and uh, Rand Flemeth and Colin Wilson that um, Atlantis was Antarctica. And so remote viewers have said that uh, underneath the Antarctic ice sheet are titanic pyramids and other polygonal megalithic structures with the same hieroglyphs on them that just you see on Mars and on the moon. And so, you know, this kind of comparative archaeology is actually w one of my main pieces of evidence for arguing that we're dealing with a time-traveling breakaway civilization, 
because uh, based on the analysis that John Brandenburg did, Dr. Uh, Dr. Brandenburg of uh, NASA um, did of uh, you know Sidonia, it appears that some kind of a thermonuclear blast destroyed that megalithic city on Mars about 250 million years before the present. And people like uh, Joe McMonagall, who remote viewed uh, that uh, city on Mars for the CIA, or Ingo Swan, who also remote viewed the same site, said that the, the people living you know, in that city, the, the engineers of that civilization on Mars were basically tall Nordics. They were the same kind of people that you know, Ingo Swan saw uh, on the moon in a contemporary context and the same kind of uh, uh, Nordics that uh, Adamski and George Hunt Williamson and other contactees of the 1950s were um, engaged with. And so I raised this question of how, how you know, any human society could possibly uh, survive continuously for 250 million years without any you know, um, significant biological evolution taking place and while maintaining the same architectural uh, and aesthetic style. Uh, and my answer is that you know, we're not looking at a continuous civilizational development here. We are looking at uh, time travelers who are able to traverse 4D space-time in order to have a civilization that, that stretches on a fifth-dimensional or hyper-dimensional level a civilization that stretches from Mars 250 million years before the present to, I don't know, Atlantis 12,000 years before the present to the moon and, and Earth today. That this is a, a hyperdimensional civilization whose ultra-Apollonian cast of mind is reflected in their uh, architectural style. Well, that touches on two things that I wanted to start with. One is, um, well, firstly, uh, circadian rhythms. People have observed that human beings actually have the circadian rhythms of Mars that were actually a little off, you know, regarding Earth. Um, and so that that's an interesting data point there. Another thing that I wanted to touch upon was the subject of remote viewing. And it kind of harks back to what we were discussing before about, you know, the, the trickster, whether that's an Earth energy, whether that's God, whether it's what the Gnostics call the demiurge, you know, whatever that is, it is supra logical. It is beyond our conception of reason and it, it's communicating. And so in one of the, the, the methodologies of remote viewing, you have to shut off one of the sides of your brain that's associated with uh, imagination because they don't want you to color, you know, the, the target. So if, if you knew, for instance, that the target is Alaska, you, your imagination kicks in, you start thinking of igloos, you start thinking of snow and it messes up, you know, the data that they're getting. So they're trained to do go into a cool down. They're trained to shut off that, that part of their brain. But unfortunately, that's the same part of the brain that has letters, that has numbers. So it's very, very hard for a remote viewer to see letters and numbers. It can be done. Pat Price did it quite, quite a lot. But um, so you're shutting down that part of the brain. And so how do you get data through? And, and in associative remote viewing, I, I did some remote viewing tests myself and I was doing, um, you know, uh, lottery numbers and uh, I was doing the pick four. And so to get around the fact that I'm shutting down the part of my brain that deals with numbers, I use celebrities as a stand in for those numbers. For instance, I, I was remote viewing. I went to cool down and I saw Linda Lavin from TV's Alice from the 1970s. And I looked her up. Her age is 76. And then I saw a guy from the, the TV show Good Times. His name was Bookman on the show. I can't remember his real name. I looked him up. His age was also 76. So I was like, how did my subconscious know that these two actors were 76 years old? So then I said, OK, the numbers must the first two numbers must be seven, six. And then after that, I lose it. I go to sleep. I, you know, <laughs> I fall asleep. I don't get the numbers. But the next day, the numbers did come out and the first two numbers were seven. 
seven and six. And so I use these people as symbols for numbers. And so my point in this whole rant is that when you see when the trickster is using seemingly surreal information and he's bringing this up from from the depths of the subconscious, it's because he has to bypass, you know, these these logical filters that would keep you from being able to assess information. It, you know, it has to it has to go around like the, the, uh, Jane Roberts in the 1960s. She had uh, the famous series of Seth books where she talks about uh, communing with an interdimensional who calls himself Seth. And that opens uh, many, many different uh, rabbit holes as well, because you look at the Gnostics with the the, the set, you know, from uh, you know Seth from Egypt, ancient Egypt. Um, but he, 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 de- he describes um, kind of similar techniques to be able to bypass um, the, the channeler messing up the information. So what he would do, Seth, when he was channeling through Jane Roberts, he would actually, you know, start talking about something and then drop the subject after a few sentences. And then he would pick up, pick up the subject three years later. And the, the sentences, if, if you actually looked at the transcripts, everything would meet, match up. And they asked him, well, why do you do this? Why don't you just tell us straight? And he said, because the more that I talk through you, your analytical overlay distorts what I'm saying. And so I have to think of ways to, to, to trick your, your conscious mind. So I have to use symbols or I have to use distortions or evasions, you know, because otherwise the, the information is not getting through clean. And so um, just to just to go back to the that's the dichotomy between the trickster and the breakaway civilization you're talking about. But yeah, but this get, also gets to the remote viewers like Joe McMonagall, who saw tall, you know, Nordic looking people on Mars. And, and that is what you were referring to, you know, regarding uh, trying to integrate that into your larger theory of a breakaway civilization. And then they time travel back 250 million years. They go to Mars based on remote viewing data. And uh, and then from there, they have to come back. Um, would you talk a little bit about how they terraformed the the moon, how the moon is, uh, is likely, uh, not as organic as people might assume. Uh, sure. Uh, before I get into the moon though, let me briefly comment on what you were saying in terms of the, the trickster toward the end of this book. I, uh, do a phenomenology of different, uh, symbolism that the trickster uses in order to engage human consciousness in particular owls, um, uh, and mantids. And, um, you know, I, I look at what it is about, you know, the, the owl uh, as an animal and what it is about, you know, um, the, the behavior and structure of, of mantids, uh, praying mantises as, or, as an organism uh, that this trickster is using in order to communicate its nature to us and to provoke a certain transformation of human consciousness. And specifically, my, uh, my idea there is that um, these these UFOs are uh, warping the fabric of space-time. Uh, and so they're creating hyperdimensional vortices that allow them to access past epochs, but these hyperdimensional vortices also allow beings from the future to travel into our time or into the human past. And so long story short, my thesis is that the trickster is an intelligence from the future. And basically... Um, it is dissatisfied with the standstill that human society has come to on the level of the breakaway civilization, that it, it sees humanity as having reached a kind of evolutionary bottleneck, and it is trying to get us, from, uh, get us out from under uh, these uh, Nordic uh, overlords so that um, we can explore uh, evolutionary possibilities that they closed off uh, to themselves. Um, okay, but to, to go to your uh, question about the moon and you know, the terraforming of the earth, I lay out uh, various pieces of evidence for the fact that the moon is artificial. Um, you know, uh, basically the, the fact that, uh, you know, the, 
the moon is one four hundredth the size of the sun, and it is one four hundredth the distance between the Earth and the sun. The fact that, say, the uh, the time it takes for the moon to orbit the Earth uh, is the same number um, as the percentage of the Earth's size that the moon is. All of these very strange uh, mathematical ratios that suggest that the moon was designed, and then the impact tests that were carried out during the Apollo program, uh, where you know um, various uh, you know modules and stages of the rockets sent to the moon impacted the surface of the moon with seismographs already in place, and uh, basically the signature that returned demonstrated that the moon was hollow. It rang like a hollow object, and. Then you've got the whole issue of the craters on the moon. The craters on the moon are not, you know, anywhere near as deep as they should be, considering how wide they are. And, uh, you know, especially in the widest of the lunar craters, you can see that the surface of the moon inside these craters is convex rather than concave. So it appears that whenever any object strikes the moon, meteorite or whatever, the the ejecta is being blown to the sides and revealing a curved hard surface underneath the moon dust, so that the quote-unquote moon dust is something like astroturf, basically. And we're dealing with a, a uh, solid spherical object uh, beneath the uh, lunar uh, surface, uh, which is highly impact resistant. And then you also have these mass cons, these areas where the gravity of the moon changes as, let's say, a you know, orbiting spacecraft circles the moon. So it suggests that there are some very gravitationally dense objects embedded into the surface of the moon. And my speculation is that the surface of this sphere has large saucers basically built into it. That, you know, if this is an artificial space station, there's probably some kind of evacuation protocol in place where you have these large saucers that are running zero point energy devices. And these are creating local gravitational fields that uh, alter the gravity of uh, the gravitational pull of the moon when you pass over them. So these are various pieces of evidence that I use to suggest that the moon was artificial. And then I talk about what the earth would have been like had there been no moon and how inhospitable uh, an earth without, without this moon would have been to human life. Um, so, you know, there, without the moon, we would not have had this 23 degree deviation from the celestial equator, the, you know, the, the Earth's equator would have been on the orbital plane of the sun. And this would have meant that you would have had like extremely, uh, you know, uh, hot temperatures toward the middle of the planet and, uh, you know, f- f- uh, frozen areas over a much larger, part, much larger part of the north and the south of the planet. So you would have had uh, significant temperature extremes that would have been prohibitive of the development of human life. The, the Earth's rotation would have been much faster than it currently is, which also would have posed a problem for the evolution of anything like Homo sapiens. Uh, and so it appears that, uh, and this is borne out also by, you know, Joe McMonagall's remote viewing of those people that he saw on Mars and, you know, how they evacuated uh, Mars. It appears that when those people arrived here, they arrived at this uh, extremely volatile, savage, uh, primordial Earth which, which was really not fit for human habitation. And they constructed the moon not only as some kind of a, you know, Noah's Ark for the Martian population, but as a terraforming device that, you know, transformed the ecological conditions of the earth in a way that 
made it capable of supporting human colonization. Yeah, that was, uh, like I said, your, your overarching thesis of putting all these interesting things together and seeing kind of like a larger pattern um, just just blew me away when I was, uh, you know, reading this. And one of, one of the things I want to touch on, just to hark back to what we were talking about before, about the origins of the breakaway civilization. So you have people, you know, in the like uh, Keeley was one of them, I believe, was his name, um, you know, in the, in the late 19th century, you know, anti-gravitics, and, and he was kind of a, a, a predecessor of uh, Tesla. Um, you have, and then it leads into, like I said, the magic and mysticism and esotericism kind of all come together as these people start doing frequencies and influence at a distance, etc. And it, it culminates as I said before, in, in the person of one Jack Parsons. And so Jack Parsons was replicating the, um, the, the spells of Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley claimed that he had opened a portal and he had subsequently closed it, but he had opened it with something that he called the Babylon working ritual. And so uh, Parsons, who saw himself as kind of like a, a protege of, of Crowley, on the one hand, he embodied the Apollonian Dionysian, um, you know, dichotomy in one person. So on the one hand, he was this very structured scientific person working on, you know, rockets and, and propellants and, and rocket boosters and stuff. But on the other hand, he was doing alchemy, just like uh, Sir, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, a huge alchemist. And um, and so it was through the alchemy that he starts replicating the spells of, of Dr. John Dee in the 1500s or Aleister Crowley, both of whom claimed that they had opened portals and they were talking to interdimensional entities. And so Parsons opens his portal according to, you know, the records that we have, and then he dies. He blows himself up uh, in a rocket experiment, leaving the portal open. It's 1947. People start noticing UFOs for the first time, or what we call UFOs. Um, the whole phenomenon goes. The 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 predecessor of the the uh, Federal Aviation Administration was you know asking like what's going on you know what, you know NORAD was was freaked out and everything. Um, so something clearly you know happened. But but he's an interesting figure because he's right there at the at the beginning you know or, or I should say the culmination of the the breakaway civilization. He would be like one of their poster children. So uh, what I argue in this book is that you know uh, the gatekeepers of the um, UFO data that's been amassed by the U.S. government over the past 70 years uh, are ultimately um, these individuals who uh, loosely refer to themselves as the Collins elite. It's an interagency group that in 1947 was tasked with studying the debris at Roswell uh, and then, you know, subsequent um, close encounters uh, that were experienced by the Air Force and the Navy and, you know, various branches of the U.S. government. And uh, the reason that I dedicated this book to Jack Parsons is that uh, the Collins elite, uh, which you're very familiar with, uh, the, the Collins elite was actually formed in order to spy on Jack Parsons and to uh, piece together what he was really involved with, you know, uh, what, what he was trying to conjure in the Western desert of the United States after he uh, blew up in his laboratory. And it's these same people who uh, you know, were interested in, in determining whether Parsons, who had a high-level security clearance, posed some threat to U.S. national security that were then you know, deployed to study the debris at Roswell. So you know, um, these individuals in the, in the so-called Collins elite uh, ultimately came to the conclusion that the whole uh, UFO phenomenon was demonic, and they justified the secrecy and uh, cover-up on the part of the U.S. government uh, by um, basically uh, claiming that uh, if they were to engage in any kind of full disclosure, 
they would be inviting the reign of the Antichrist and precipitating the apocalypse. Uh, so I find it interesting that, you know, a group of people who were uh, originally brought together to study, uh, you know, the Babylon working of, of uh, Jack Parsons uh, ultimately, you know, became the single group most responsible for the UFO cover-up in the United States and, you know, putatively for the reason that uh, should they uh, reveal the truth to the public, this portal that Parsons was opening would be, uh, you know, would basically engulf the earth and that, you know, we would, uh, we would be uh, assaulted by, as Charles Ford put it, hordes of angels and the apocalypse would be at hand. Well, I mean, th- that same group, like the Collins Elite, which was kind of an informal subset, like within the CIA, and they're studying Parsons because they think he might be selling technology to what would become Israel. And um, so they, they're looking into into his background. But they became so fascinated um, that initially, you know, they, they wanted these what they considered uh, technologies, um, these spiritual technologies. And according to Nick Redfern in his book, Final Events, they were doing experiments at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, that would be very familiar to anyone who had been in a 19th century seance, you know, materialization uh, mediums and stuff, making what they called apports, where they could make coins fall from the air or newspapers from a different time period that were that were were, you know, crisp and, and brand new and weren't yellowed, you know, I mean, like all these, these just fascinating things, but it was the military working on these things. And then subsequently the CIA and probably other agencies as well, because they saw initially, you know, we could get a strategic advantage, you know, we could use this, we could weaponize this. And only later on did the Collins elite little by little start to, you know, suspect that these were not aliens you know, these were not people from physical planets, that these were more like, you know, Jacques Vallée says, like uh, interdimensionals. These were things that in previous ages people might have described as demonic. And uh, one of the things that, that struck me about uh, about uh, the, the book uh, Final Events by Nick Redfern was the, the Collins elite points out that uh, the, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, he talks about the end times and he describes it as the age of Babylon. And he says he calculates, you know, when the age and, and the age of Babylon starts. And he says October 2nd, 1914. And this was not lost on the Collins elite because they noticed that Jack Parsons birth date was October 2nd, 1914. And Charles Taze Russell had made this prediction back in 1876, saying that the beginning of Babylon, the age of Babylon would start, you know, the age of Satan, the age of Aramon, as Rudolf Steiner might call it, would start October 2nd, 1914. I, I remember that date because that's that happens to be my birthday October 2nd not 1914 mind you but but um you know but I mean just fascinating and the fact that the ritual that he used to open the portal was called the Babylon working you know so I mean so they were they were they were spooked and they they started to back away from you know the 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 naive assumption that they could uh you know kind of use these co-opt these technologies these spiritual technologies but you have that breakaway civilization you have that you know the origins there of they're using these technologies that we would think of as magic and it leads to this breakaway civilization it leads to this this core of individuals who can manipulate space can manipulate time can manipulate the outlines of what we think of as reality and then you know it leads to them you know uh, breaching space time and you know having to go someplace far away mars according to the remote viewers um so i mean just a, a very very uh, fascinating uh, you know take on 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 all these things so um I, i've been rambling so go ahead jump in well, I, I call uh, what Parsons referred to as the, the age of Babylon, uh, you know, um, basically developing ideas from out of Aleister Crowley. I call it the uh, Promethea Aeon, the Aeon of Promethea or the Prometheon, um, an age uh, where the trickster takes the form of Prometheus or of a, a Promethean 
intelligence. And uh, I make the case that, you know, we can, uh, in the manner of, you know, forming an egregore or a tulpa, we can influence the shape that this trickster takes. And I think that it's the trickster aspect of the close encounter phenomenon that Parsons was really working with, uh, you know, and, and not those um, uh, predominant uh, elements of close encounters that have to do with the Nordic breakaway civilization. He was working with the destructuring force um, that is engaging us, uh, I think, from Earth's future. Well, with, with that, let me uh, wrap this up and just say that in reading your work, um, I was I was very, very impressed. And it was basically the work of a philosopher um, dealing with, you know, things that most people, you know, kind of read for fun, you know, uh, things about Atlantis or, or you know, UFOs or stuff, stuff like this. But it was, you know, a philosopher, a, a very a person of very expansive intellect, kind of bringing systematic thought to these these uh, these things. And um, and it was in, in a way. When, when you hit the, the trickster section of the book, toward the end of the book, it was philosophy transcending itself and it was philosophy going into poetry and the higher truths that are, that are you know, in those symbols that are inherent in, in the, that, uh, that Dionysian way of looking at the world. And that, to me, was the most beautiful thing. Like I, as a kid, I was strange. I used to read philosophy for the poetry. Like, I used to read Nietzsche, uh, Thus Big Zarathustra, and he, he describes it at some point, you know, the cross, that most horrible tree, you know, growing up in the Middle East the cross and just describing it as something growing up from the soil organically. I was like, wow, that's sheer poetry, you know? So it's very, very rare. I mean, outside of Schopenhauer or Nietzsche to come across a philosopher who is kind of transcending philosophy and going into the, into the higher regions of poetry. And, and you find that in Closer Encounters. It is a phenomenal work. Thank you, Daniel. I mean, I, uh, frankly, I think uh, you've really understood what it is that I'm trying to do. And it's something that I feel a responsibility to do at this time. Chapter three, conclusion. Uh, you know, s- since I first read Plato's Republic, um, I, uh, uh, I've always agreed that um, politics and uh, securing the most just and, and ideal regime is ultimately the responsibility of the philosopher. And there couldn't be any greater uh, challenge to the nature of uh, sovereign authority that we're going to face over the next 30 years within this generation than, uh, you know, the issue of disclosure and uh, the nature of our relationship to close encounters. I think that the imminence of the technological singularity uh, over the course of the next 30 years or so um, tasks us with thinking very seriously about close encounters and that ultimately it is the responsibility of the philosopher to uh, engage with this um, enigma in a way that will secure uh, the most constructive uh, evolutionary possibilities for humanity in the coming time. Okay, awesome. Uh, and with that, I wanted to thank our guest, Jason Reza Giorgiani, uh, for coming down and telling us about his book, Closer Encounters. And I am Daniel Natal, and I will see you next time on Under the Iceberg. <laughs> <laughs>